Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello, welcome to BatChat from the Bat Conservation Trust, otherwise known as BCT, the leading NGO in the United Kingdom solely devoted to the conservation of bats and the landscapes on which they rely. This podcast is for anyone who loves bats, bringing stories straight to your headphones from the world of bat conservation and from the people out there doing work that furthers our understanding of these magical creatures. I'm Steve Rowe. I'm an ecologist and a trustee of the Bat Conservation Trust. You can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat. That's all one word. In this interview, recorded right at the end of August last year, I'm sat in a Norfolk woodland with Dr Charlotte Packman. I went there to learn what potential impacts a new road in the area might have on the local bat populations. And as Lottie explains, it could have a significant impact on a nationally significant Barberstell bat population. Lottie starts us off by introducing herself and describing where we are. So I'm Lottie Packman. I'm an ecologist specialising in bats and I do research and some consultancy and I run bat training courses as well. So yeah, we are here. We're northwest of Norwich and we're in the Wensum Valley and there's a network of mature woodlands around here all very good for the uh, bat species we're going to be talking about so yeah we're, we're going to be talking about the Wensum western link relief road or whatever it's currently called it's changed names a couple of times but why is why is this woodland that we're in so special yeah so that's part of what we're trying to find out really but it's certainly special to the the barber cells that's become clear i think there's a combination of factors here so we've got the river Wensum just over there and yeah this patchwork of mature woodlands in the area relatively little developments here so there's good barb cell habitat seems to be good foraging habitats good commuting features for them and then in these woodlands there's lots of roost features for them so what we seem to be seeing is the woodlands that have lots of potential roost features suitable for barb cells seem to have larger colonies in them so yeah, something has come together and we're still trying to work out what the magic formula is that seems to be making this area particularly attractive for barbastels. And we know that Norfolk as a whole, you know, has long been considered a stronghold for barbastels. And what we've discovered over the last sort of five or so years is that this is really the absolute perfect place for them, really. So we're finding the highest numbers, nationally important area here for barbastels. So yeah something is pulling together all these factors that's just made it really good for them 
was going to say, when I started bat conservation 20-odd years ago, barber styles were considered really rare. Since then, like you've just said, Norfolk's been found to be a stronghold and not necessarily woodlands as well. They're commuting across open arable fields, which mm. before we didn't think that they would. Is, is that because there's now more barber styles than a few years ago, or is it just because we've got better at finding them? hard to say <laughs> but I, I suspect it's that we've got better at finding them you know as the technology's improved barber styles have relatively quiet calls so I think as the acoustic recording technology has improved we're probably getting better at picking them up and we're just looking for them more in these woodlands as we're, we're discovering more I think we've, we've also you know here in Norfolk we've really kind of refined methods for catching barber styles so I think our capture success rate is, is pretty high now so we're definitely getting quite good, I think, now at finding them. If they are there, we will find them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's all part of it. But we've definitely got to be a little bit aware of the shifting baselines thing. And there's certainly some indications that possibly in the past and some of the sort of beginnings of some of the genetic work that's coming out that, that Jane Harris has been doing, you know, is giving us an inkling that potentially there could have been much larger populations here historically but it's it's still too early at this stage to know about that but yeah so i think we need to be careful what we're comparing to uh, we're getting a snapshot in time at the moment so you mentioned jane there who was on the podcast last series when we met her at paston barn and she mentioned the work that you've been doing here and i was asking about what size of colony is a typical barber style colony she said that was very hard to answer the colonies that she looks at and monitors are anywhere between 20 30 high 30s but she mentioned one of the trees that you've got here in in this block of woodlands that has over 100 bats and you've said that you think that this colony around this woodland is a super colony so what constitutes a super colony and how many bats is it yeah so super colony is a term that we've sort of pinched from uh, the entomologists really but it just seemed to very well describe what we're seeing here so when it's used in the insect world, and particularly for ant colonies, it's usually used to describe a large number of ants and ant colonies that are spatially separated but socially connected. Okay. And that's really what we're seeing here. So I think the term super colony reflects the very high numbers that we're finding here and the fact that there are these colonies that are really next-door neighbours to each other. So there's sort of one in each of the the mature woodlands in this sort of network here and they are spatially separated but very close but there clearly is social interaction going on between those and almost certainly there's going to be genetic flow between those colonies Mm. and we're not aware of that phenomenon really having been seen elsewhere in the UK to this extent and there's some sites where you know there's really next door woodlands and you could draw a line down between them but the barbastels they obviously cross and there's overlap, but they, the colonies never mix. Okay. So they're always faithful to roosting in their same, uh, in those same colonies. So yeah, so that's been quite interesting. We've only really been able to start delving into that now. That we've, we're tagging barbastels simultaneously from uh, all of those colonies. So we can really start to, to get a picture of how those are interacting. In terms of numbers, so the, the colonies in this area, they vary from around sort of 25 at the lower end to the the largest one in the area which we've had over 105 barbastels and those were coming out of one individual tree and it was incredible to see that it's a big old sweet chestnut tree and as it's grown it's sort of twisted and the bark split apart 
and the barber cells just sort of leak out all over. So it's incredibly <laughs> difficult to count, <laughs> hence it being at least 105. So that's a conservative estimate. But we know at least that many um, come out of that tree. And every year they've been going back and using that same tree in the sort of peak maternity period. But then they use many other trees in the area. And so for the, the super colony as a whole, we've now recorded um, nearly 100 individual roost trees being used by the, the super colony. And obviously now, because we've been going, this is our fifth season of quite intensive study of these colonies, we're now finding a lot of the time they're going back to trees that we've already identified. So we have these little blue roost tags that we fitted to the trees. Unfortunately, before BCT brought out theirs, so we haven't been using yours, I'm afraid. So we've got a great database of, of all those trees and how they've been used in different years and by different individuals. But then, of course, every year we also accrue some new trees. The sites we've been working at longer... We're accruing fewer new trees each year because we've covered so many of the roost trees. And we've been collecting quite detailed data on um, the roost features and um, looking at the roost use at different scales. So that, I'm in the process of crunching through (laughs) piles of data. But um, yeah, we're hoping to get that written up and published relatively soon. So um, yeah, we'll be able to say more about what we found with that in the near future, hopefully. As an estimate, how many different colonies do you think that there are and what sort of range are you covering as part of these surveys? Well, the intensive study that we've been doing is just on three of these colonies within mm-hmm. the super colony. Yeah. But we know there are more. We know there's at least two more. And there are probably other ones. On the radio tracking map, when we pulled it together, there are some clear gaps, yeah. which I'm pretty sure there's probably other colonies in those. So we are just scratching the surface at the moment. We're yeah, still finding, finding out the answer to that. In terms of the numbers... That is a question that, that keeps me awake at night. I think what's clear is that from colony counts alone, we're, we're only getting a fraction of the true picture. Yeah. Our estimate based on the colony counts is of around 270 barbastels um, in the super colony. But we've also been ringing, but we've only been ringing, ringing for um, two seasons now. And we've already ringed 122 to date barbastels so that's really telling us there's probably an awful lot more than 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 270 so that's something we're working on this question of numbers it sounds like something so simple how many are there but it's actually really hard so we're we're trying to use a mark recapture approach so ringing the bats and then recapturing them and the rate of recapture over time we should be able to start getting a picture of what that means for the for the numbers and that's important too, not just for here, but because obviously nationally there isn't any good population estimate for the numbers of barbastels. Yeah. So we're hoping if we can contribute something to um, getting some better estimates here, then that might be something that can be used elsewhere and help to, to fill that gap in terms of how many are there. And just to pick up on the, the ringing side of things, are you ringing by catching bats away from the roost or are you hand netting at the roost? How, how are you trying to get as many bats as possible without causing that disturbance that's sometimes associated with that yes we we we've only been trapping on flyways so we're not we're not trapping directly from the roosts generally we're in the maternity roost woodlands and we put up nets and then we're catching them on and we're on rides and we're catching them on those flyways we do sometimes go to other sites which we know are important commuting routes as well but i think it's important to say as well with that sort of 122 ringed at the moment we're still still going on with this we're only uh we're only ringing in by 
sort of a couple of trapping sessions a season. So we're not out every night trapping and putting rings on bats. So again, I think that tells you something about the number that are around, that if you're only doing a couple of sessions in a woodland in a whole summer um, and you're getting those kind of numbers. And we, we are getting a good number of retraps too. So we're obviously keeping an eye on, on how they're doing and how the ring wear is. But so far that all looks all looks positive. So yeah, but it's something we need to do long term to really be able to get a grip on the numbers and then ultimately, hopefully, the actual population trends. So are they going up or down? Nice. So can you just describe for people who don't know what they look like, what do barb stars look like? What's their ecology and their roof sites and things like that? So they're really quite extraordinary looking and very unique looking. A lot of people describe them as being kind of pug faced. So they're a medium sized bat by UK terms. They're very, very dark fur. So most of our bats are varying shades of brown. Barber cells are really quite black. So they look like a little lump of coal when they come flying out the roosts. They've often got these sort of light golden tips to the fur. Um, they've got this quite long shaggy fur. And then they've got these very chunky, prominent ears and a very sort of black face. So yeah, they're very distinctive looking. None of our other bats really look anything like them. In the sort of early summer, they tend to start forming what we call the maternity roosts. So that's where the females are gathering to sort of form a nursery where they're going to give birth to their young. And typically we're finding them in mature trees and often dead trees that have got loose bark. So of the 100 or so roosts that we've recorded, the vast majority of those are loose or flaking bark that they just sort of tuck up behind. Um, that, that's definitely their, their preferred feature. Um, in this area, we, we find them predominantly in sweet chestnut trees and oak trees. Um, and I guess really just because they're, they're the species that are here and are forming those loose bark features. They are very much considered to be a bat of mature and ancient woodlands so they're probably quite a good indicator species in that sense in terms of habitat quality and areas that are good for barbastels are typically good for for lots of other species too yeah and then i guess another thing that's quite distinctive about them is these very large home ranges that they have so we've tracked bats from these colonies up to about 12 kilometers away so they'll they'll go out and come all the way back to the, the woodlands over that distance more typically the, the home ranges are sort of five to six kilometres in this area, radius around the maternity roosts. But yeah, they can go an awful lot further. And that's compared to things like, say, pipistrels that have a home range maybe of only one or two kilometres uh, radius. So, so yeah, they travel far, they travel fast. They like these really good quality habitats, woodlands, rivers, really quite a mosaic of habitats, I think. At least that's what we're seeing here in, in Norfolk. Nice. And we're sat next to an oak tree, which has got, well, like Lottie's described, it's it's just covered in bits of flaking bark. We can see bits of the deadwood, the heartwoods behind that living bark tissue, um, the splits and cracks and crevices. And you say this this is one of the barber-style trees that you've been monitoring. How many bats have you had in this oak tree here? Yeah, it is one of the roosts that's been used by the colony. So sometimes when we track them, particularly late season, you might just have an individual bat roosting on its own. Mm-hmm. But this is a... A colony roost but it wasn't being used by the full colony at the time I don't think I think the most we've had from this tree is 22 and they only use this tree quite briefly they do mm. move around a lot between the different trees in the woodlands so they do need a good resource of different roost options but yeah this is a, a classic sort of barbastel roost tree really big almost dead not quite 
clinging on for life uh, oak tree. But similarly, we've found them in tiny, spindly, long dead uh, stumps that have just got a tiny little flick of loose bark at, at the top, and they're they're up under there. So they're 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 not always using the obvious um, the obvious trees and obvious features that you think. There is quite a bit of variety, and sometimes the roosts are very low down. Sometimes they're way up high in the canopy, making it very tricky for us to count. <laughs> And sometimes the, the tree may have no bark left at all, except for one little A4 piece, and that's what they're, they're roosting under. So they, they do need this sort of continual supply of, of suitable roost features to be developing, because obviously those loose bark, that's usually quite late on in the, in the tree's life, and potentially those features are there one year and they're gone the next um, or as a, a landowner I spoke to recently said, a con- so we need a continual supply of, of dead and dying trees then, which is basically what we need for them. But yeah, that's that's really what we need. And, and often you look around these woods and there may be lots of old trees, maybe some recruitment, but the deer are often hammering that, so the, the new tree growth. But uh, often there's not an awful lot in between. So you do wonder, and it is a concern, where the, where the barber-style roosts are of, you know, a hundred years time um where you know where are they going to be coming from um and i don't think we've yet really cracked how to make the perfect barbastel accommodation to tempt them but that is something we've actually got a few different designs that we're trialing at the moment based on our um on our roost data that we've been collecting so why were you working with these bats originally were you working with them before the announcement of the new link road or was that did it all come about because of the, the announcement of the link road so we'd been we'd been working on um, bats in two of the colonies in the area, and that had already sort of sparked our interest because there were these two right next door to each other colonies, and we wondered what was going on going on there. And the numbers were clearly very high, so we were already working at those sites. And then I actually read an article in the local paper, which mentioned one of the local landowners, um, and actually in this woodland where we are now. And he was obviously very concerned about the proposed dual carriageway that's going to come through, right through this bit of woodland here. And he mentioned that he'd taken part in the the BTO's British Trust for Ornithology's Norfolk Bat Survey. So he'd had a detector out and he was talking about the bats. And he mentioned barbastel bats have been recorded here, which obviously caught my attention. Um, And obviously it's so near to the other colonies we'd been working at that I was quite keen to follow up on that. And it also transpired that the, the surveys that had been done, the council's commission surveys for the road, hadn't picked up the presence of barbastels here. And I managed to get hold of the acoustic data from, from the BTO and had a look at that. And it was immediately apparent that there were a lot of barbastel calls and very soon after sunset. So, you know, it seemed clear that it was very likely that there was going to be a, a colony in these woods. And so we followed that up with a trapping survey here, caught barbastels, radio tagged a couple of them, tracked them back to the roosts, did counts and pretty quickly established that there was a maternity colony here in these woods. That was quite late in the season. Mm. So we then planned to do more work on it in the following season, which we did. And then we followed up again this year as well. So we've been collecting a lot more data on those since then. So you've publicly spoken out about the controversy of the Norwich Western Link Road. Why are you so opposed to it? Obviously, it's about the bats, but why? Yeah, so I think the more we've been studying these colonies, it's clear there's something really quite exceptional going on here for barbastels. 
this is a nationally important area for them. We've got what's probably the largest known extinct barbastel roost in the area and this super colony phenomenon. And the road would, would basically cut through the sort of core of the cores in terms of the, the core sustenance zones. So where those all overlap, drawing those around each of the maternity colony woodlands, including some of the others we know about in the area, you get this kind of core area which is used by all of them. And the, the proposed road would cut right through the middle of that. It would come directly through this woodland, and this is a maternity colony woodland. But this area is also used by, you know, the neighbouring colonies as well. So it really will fragment the super colony. We're also concerned because there were two other colonies that were in the vicinity of the, the first phase of this road, which was called the Norwich Northern Distributor Road that ran around the, uh, what it does what it says on the tin, ran around the, the northern edge of, of Norwich. And when we went back to look for those post-construction we couldn't find barbastels in those woodlands. Um, so that was pretty concerning. And I think those colonies, um, at least one of those, would have been part of this super colony. And it, they don't appear to be there anymore. The road went directly through one woodland, where you'd, you know, you'd expect a pretty catastrophic impact there. Actually, slight, slight tangent, but bizarrely, when we went there to trap, it was eerily quiet. I mean, the woodland still sort of looks okay, but very, very quiet. We didn't even hear a bat on the detector till gone midnight. One bat, the first bat. So something very strange going on there. And there are these indirect impacts that we're yet to really fully unpick. But the other colony, which we think probably would have been part of this super colony, um, was about two and a half kilometres from that road. So we're concerned that the road would not just impact directly on the colonies in this wood, but it's also going to have knock-on effects on the, the neighbouring colonies that are you know, within that two-and-a-half-kilometre range. So that road, which has been built, did they know that the bats were there and did they try and mitigate for that? Yes, so they'd done surveys beforehand. They were aware of the barbastel colonies that were there. So the main mitigation seems to have been road-crossing structures. So there's a green bridge and there's some gantries and there's an underpass and that's something that's been really interesting from our radio tracking is that we've seen barbastels crossing that road. Uh, we've recorded multiple barbastels from the colonies crossing that road. So I don't think the road is a barrier to barbastels because they have such large home ranges. They, they've got to cross the road somewhere. But it's clear that they were having to track quite a long way along it before they could cross. So potentially it's increasing their, the time they're having to, to spend commuting. Yeah. And then they were crossing multiple bats different years different colonies crossing at the same very specific features on that road unfortunately none of those were the designated bat mitigation crossing structures i mean it's kind of obvious they were crossing where the vegetation comes as close as possible to the edge of the road and it's sort of leaning over so they're really having the narrowest possible dash across the road yeah so that's been something that's been quite interesting um, to observe from the from the radio tracking data and the concern is that they're proposing much the same sort of approaches for, the, for this road here, the extension of that road. And given what we've seen on the NDR, the Northern Distributor Road, we're very worried about what impact this is going to have on the, the Barberstow colonies here. But, you know, the evidence is there, um, and yet there seems to be this insistence to plough on regardless. So, The road that they're proposing is a dual carriageway in another direction, that it's going to be under four miles in length and we know that barbastel bats will commute 12 miles, if not more. Why is it going to have such 
high impact when the majority of the woodland is going to remain? I think we need to move away from just focusing on individual roost trees in particular, but even just the individual woodlands. You know, these really are bats of the landscape. They've got large home ranges. They're not here because of an individual roost tree and they're probably not here because of an individual woodland. Um, I think barbs tails will be a lot more common if, if all they needed was a bit of flaking bark on a tree somewhere. So yeah, so here there's obviously the direct habitat loss, direct loss of roost trees um, on the path of the road, but the woodland as a whole is going to be fragmented. There will be noise, light, vibration, very likely a reduction in insect numbers, um, pollution, there's just, yeah, this sort of gradual degradation that happens around the roads. But then, you know, the road cuts right across the River Wensum, and that is the main commuting route for bats from all three of these core colonies that we've been studying intensively. So that really is their sort of main highway there. They forage a lot along the river as well, over the marshes. So obviously there's going to be a big impact on, um, on that feature for them. Uh, and then it also cuts across farmland, so it'll cut across the farmland next to us here. That's a, a key area they use for foraging. And obviously the woodlands themselves, they're, you know, here they're using this not just for roosting, but they're, they're foraging here. It's where the young, when they emerge from the roosts, are learning to fly in the shelter. When the weather's bad, they'll stay in the woods um, to forage. So it's really just sort of carving up the landscape, and they're using really all the habitats along this road. Yeah, so it's a lot more than the direct footprint of the road it has all these sort of knock-on indirect effects on the surrounding habitats so you end up with a much much larger area that becomes far less suitable for use by barbastels so it's probably doesn't happen overnight it's probably a gradual process but the evidence that's out there suggests that this will have you know a really serious impact on these colonies and yeah it's the most important area in the country probably for barbastels so i think it would be pretty catastrophic if this goes ahead so the proposals show that they they are going to try and mitigate for for the colonies you know they're proposing several green bridges viaducts back underpasses they've acknowledged that back gantries aren't perhaps as successful as once thought and they've moved away from the idea of those those big gantries or back bridges why is all that other mitigation, which we think is more suitable, why is that mitigation not enough? And what mitigation would you think is appropriate? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think the thing is, it's very simplistic in terms of let's just make sure the bats can cross the road. That's only a, a small part of what the problem is here. So the idea with those mitigation crossing structures is to avoid barbastel collisions with, with vehicles, to try and get them to cross at a safe height. As I said, we've seen on the, the Northern Distributor Road that they aren't using those, including the Green Bridge. I think there's also a danger that things get treated in the same way when they're not necessarily the same. So there is evidence that Green Bridges can work for some bat species. I'm not sure that there's direct evidence out there for barbastels. But those Green Bridges that have had some success look nothing like the, uh, the Green Bridge that's on the uh, Northern Distributor Road. So, you know, if you're clearing the vegetation way back, you're sticking a bridge in that's really exposed over the top and then you're sticking a load of hedge whips in that then invariably perish because they're not looked after. That's not a green bridge. Uh, You can call it a green bridge, but it's not a green bridge. So we've got to be really careful what we mean when we say a green bridge uh, because they're not all created equal. And, you know, to do them properly and have any chance of them having 
some sort of effectiveness. They're incredibly expensive to do. And that's why they get sort of corners are cut and you end up with something that's really just a bridge, not a green bridge. Again, I know there's been some success with things like underpasses as well, but that's not what we've seen on the uh, Northern Distributor Road here. I think something that's interesting that we weren't looking at directly, but we've sort of learnt from uh, studying the barbastels here is the literature often seems to say that they're high-flying species. And so I think the assumption was that, you know, the risk of them colliding with vehicles is is fairly low. But what we've seen repeatedly, because we're we're trapping with mist nets on flyways, we're not using lures, we're not doing anything to pull them down to a lower level. But typically we're catching them at two metres or under. So that is prime vehicle collision height. And also we often actually sight them when we're out radio tracking, either because there's some moonlight or we use infrared cameras and with detectors. So we actually can often see our, the bat we're tracking And they're not flying way up high in the sky, they're flying low down. So that is a problem. And I think one of the the latest potential mitigation measures they've mentioned are these hopovers. So this idea of keeping the vegetation close to the edge of the road and having sort of some overhang to help the bats across. And from what we've seen, that on paper sounds good and sounds like it would be something they, they could use and we know they use features like that. But there's no evidence to suggest that they're actually going to cross high up. They're, you know, what we've seen is that they cross low down. And there have been some studies uh, in Europe that have shown that in bat carcass searches along the side of roads, looking for bats that have been hit by cars, that barbacels can show up disproportionately given their rarity in those searches, which would suggest that they're potentially more vulnerable. And certainly what we're learning about their flight heights would suggest that they are going to be very vulnerable to those collisions. I mean, I've noticed that, you know, I do commercial trapping projects around the country and like you say, when, you know, we're using misnets and not using laws on misnets and we're getting them in those bottom two pockets of the misnet right down at the ground. Has anybody done any studies or has anybody got any ideas as to why they fly so low down? Not that I'm aware of, no. I mean, I'm guessing that well, when they're in the woodland, the canopy is often quite low, so that makes sense that they're, they're flying low. It's nice and sheltered. If they're following a tree line or hedge line, those features are often low if they want to be under them and in the shelter of them. And it may well be that they're food. Um, so we know they eat actually quite a range of insects, but moths are um, often a big chunk of that. So potentially the, the species that they're after for, for feeding are, are low down. So yeah, I'm not sure where this idea that they're high flyers has come from, but it's certainly not been our experience here and also they're often described as a late emerging species and that's also not been our experience here we're we're often recording them pretty soon after sunset sometimes even occasionally before sunset and they can be quite variable but there's just so much other things that we're learning as we go along and also I mean even things like dispersal so I think we always assume the females must stay and return the juvenile females to the maternity colonies and it's probably the males that are dispersing. But the juvenile males that we've ringed at these colonies, we are catching a year later uh, back in the maternity woodlands, which I think is quite interesting, which suggests potentially that they are not dispersing. Mm. But then potentially that's not where mating's happening. So we had a really interesting phenomenon uh, last season. We were tracking later than usual, you know, sort of further into the uh, end of the season than, mm. than we usually do. And we had bats tagged simultaneously from the three core study colonies. 
and all of our bats ended up at the same site way out of range normal range for most of them Um, but they all converged from the different colonies on this one area which suggests to me that that's potentially you know maybe a swarming or mating site so perhaps it doesn't matter if the males disperse from the maternity woodlands if all the colonies in the area are going to a specific site to mate then that's perhaps where the genetic mixing's happening so I'm digressing but uh, there's just all these interesting little nuggets that we're picking up along the way from from the data well since you've gone off on the tangent just to pick up i know you've you've said how many bats you've rung how many bats have you radio tracked at the moment so specifically in these three core sites we've now radio tracked i think it's about 60 adult female barbastels so yeah and that's been over uh four or five seasons so obviously this one here we've only been studying relatively recently yeah i think we're getting quite a good picture from that number of bats so early this year in February, Martin Wilby, who's a council cabinet member for highways, transport and infrastructure, confirmed in a BBC interview that the notable bat activity found in the woodlands in the area at the northern end of the proposed road route means that they're currently carrying out work to develop mitigation and refine the proposed alignment of the new road to minimise the impact of the scheme on the area. Will that alteration in that Barmerstel hotspot not solve the issue? No, I don't think so. It's a very minor tweak to the route. Um, my understanding is that they've done that to avoid one specific roost tree that the, the council's contractors found. But there are many roost trees here. There's another roost tree that's actually directly on the path of the road, which they haven't found in their surveys, I don't think. So yeah, this is cosmetic, unfortunately. Um, It's not going to make any fundamental difference. It's still coming through these woodlands. It's still coming right through the core, you know, that core of the core sustenance zones for the the super colony. Yeah, I I can't see that that's, other than avoiding one individual roost tree, uh, I think it's sort of missing the point to think that that's going to make any difference, really. And again, I can't remember if it was the same interview or a different one, but you said that the council have chosen the, had chosen the route before undertaking bat surveys. Have they said why they didn't follow the best practice guidance and, and undertaking bat trapping surveys, which is pretty standard for large infrastructure projects? Have they said why they didn't do that from the outset? No, we haven't got a clear response on that. I think the issue that, that was apparent was that they had a short list of potential routes and they had selected this specific route without doing the detailed bat surveys on that. So as I said, if they if they had done the proper surveys, it would have been very apparent very quickly that there was a Barbastel maternity colony in this woodland. And usually that would have been a complete game changer. And they would have said, OK, right, we need to go back to the drawing board. I think the difficulty they've got themselves into now is they've pressed ahead with the uh, road plans and then retrospectively have sort of scrabbled to try and get the bat survey data together. And now they are slowly starting to find things that are a little bit inconvenient for them. It's still a problem that they've only really scratched the surface in terms of the significance of the colonies here. So the colony counts are much lower than the counts that we've had here um, and at the other sites, actually. So there's a lot that's missing. But they have at least acknowledged now, which was flatly denied in the early days that there is a maternity colony in this wood uh, albeit that they they haven't really captured the full numbers or, and the full significance so given that 
you've found this this super colony and you're finding more data and new information all the time and it does appear that it's a, a large population you know what are the local designations like is the area designated how many other triple size or secs have you got in this area so there's quite a big gap here for that so this woodland here is county wildlife site and that's overseen and administered by the norfolk wildlife trust who i'm actually working for at the moment for for six months doing this research but yeah, there, there aren't many triple SIs and there's only actually, despite Norfolk being a stronghold for barbastels, there's only actually one uh, SAC designated for barbastels in Norfolk. And that's Paston Barn that Jane Harris talked about before on this podcast. So we really would like to see this area designated as a barbastel SAC. As I said, it's probably the most important area in the country for them. It's absolutely crying out for some protection. Uh, most of it isn't even triple SI, so it is scarily under protected at the moment so that's something we'd really like to encourage natural england to look at and how difficult is it to get those designations in place is it a case if you present the data to natural england do you know whether you've got enough data at the moment to to go to them with that data yeah so i think um it's clearly a bit of a, a a long process but the huge advantages we've got here is we've got so much data about these colonies and over over you know a good few years so we should really have all the information that, that Natural England need in order to be able to designate those sites. Um, so I hope that should make it a lot easier to, to get these, uh, these designations in place. Dr Charlotte Packman, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Lottie for sitting down with me. If you'd like to find out more about the Western Link and the potential impacts it could have on wildlife, we've put a link in the show notes to the Norfolk Wildlife Trust, and our own position statement on the proposals is also in the show notes too. We've also included a link to that other episode mentioned with Jane Harris at the incredible Paston Great Barn site, so do go have a listen to that. Please do get in touch with the show to tell us about your bats, a special bat sighting you had this year, or a site you think everyone should visit to go and watch bats. Whatever your experience with bats, we really want to hear from you, so do get in touch. The voicemail link is in the show notes, and don't worry, you can hear your message back and re-record it if you don't like it before sending it to us. Messages can be up to 90 seconds long, and we can't wait to hear from you. Next time, we're speaking with one of the legends of the bat world, Tony Hudson, so join us then in two weeks' time. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.